I think the highlight of, of having him come to our farm visit every summer. <laughs> it was nothing for him to say hi to Paul Wellstone or to David Mengi or, or any of the uh, people that used to stop in at the time I was county commissioner in Redwood County. And, and he was not that old when he started working for us, with us, at the grocery store because he had been, what, 12, 11 or 12, mm -hmm. whatever, and he was quite the schmoozer. He would carry the groceries out for the people because the town was basically older people. Mm -hmm. He'd carry them out and he'd say, oh, I work on tips because my grandma doesn't pay me. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been the time we were able to drive ourselves, so we were going up and Josh had this Lumina. He must have just got the thing. And I was riding with him. I still remember it. Every, it was an automatic, but it had first and second and drive, you know, or third and drive. And it didn't matter. Every stoplight, everything, all the way up to Duluth, he'd power through all those gears, <laughs> every damn light all the way up there. And I'm pretty sure the tranny went out the week after well, he got home. Like, you would tell him, like, I don't think he's Yeah, I'm like, dude, I, I, you know, I don't know. He's like, no, it's, it's the quickest way to get there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he did his hunting and fishing and stuff like that. When you're coming out here, we're making bombs, riding, you know, four-wheelers and three-wheelers, which wasn't in his wheelhouse most of the time. So I was riding my dirt bike, and he was riding a three-wheeler one time, and all of a sudden he just went flying off the road, and he hit a tree or whatever. And so I come back, and I come around, he's kind of laying in the ditch, and he just looks at me and goes, I want my grandma! <laughs> so. Okay, if he'd be running the register and I'd be back maybe putting stuff away or something, he'd go, Bag lady needed on one. <laughs> He's always full of something. This is the Simply Vanished podcast produced by Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Josh Newville. Welcome back to the podcast. And first of all, thank you to the members of Josh Guillemot's family who welcomed me graciously into their homes this weekend. At the top of the podcast, you heard from Jean and Marge Short, Josh's grandparents, and then from his cousins, Lizzie, Sean, and Jake, and his aunt and uncle, Vicki and Tim. Uh, it was truly an honor and a privilege spending time with you in your homes, uh, laughing, hearing your stories, and you know, genuinely having hope that we are together you know, pushing this case forward. And that brings me to you, our listeners. Thank you for providing that hope by continuing to talk about Josh's case, for your, your kindness, your, your feedback. We cannot do this without you. And so please continue to talk about this case. Please continue to share information about Josh and the leads that you're hearing on this podcast. And on that note, before we dive into episode number three, recall this story involving Anthony, as we reported in episode number two. We have confirmed that the following story originated in November of 2002. It occurred approximately the same time that Josh went missing. A student we are calling Anthony was walking back to his dorm from a party in Flinttown when a four-door pickup truck or SUV-type vehicle pulled up. The four occupants of the vehicle told Anthony that they had a friend who was hurt or killed by the stone bridge. 
and he should get into the truck so they could safely get him back to his dorm. After Anthony climbed into the truck, the occupants drove him to a swampy area. When Anthony asked what they were doing, they told him it was time to pay the price for the ride. They then told Anthony he was to give the driver of the vehicle a blowjob. When the driver exited the vehicle to change spots with the passenger in the rear, Anthony ran into the woods. The four occupants then chased after Anthony, but apparently never caught up to him. So that's Anthony's story. The same two-week period that Josh Gimon disappears. The same Flynn town that Josh would have been walking from after leaving Nate's dorm. The same stone bridge that bloodhounds trace Josh halfway across. The same heart of campus that Josh theoretically would have been walking towards. And this is all not to mention the proximity uh, and similarities and potential connections with these other incidents that occurred around the same time and in some cases in a similar fashion. So you can see why this is a very important lead. But here's the problem. Unlike with Mary and Kyle and Zach and Kyle's dad, Morgan, Anthony is not talking, or at least he has not yet responded to our efforts at reaching out. So for now, I am simply reiterating this ask to not just Anthony, but to those who he's told this story to over the years. And I know there are at least several people. Please step forward. Please call me. Let's talk. I will keep you entirely anonymous as I have thus far. At the bare minimum, even if it doesn't, you know, solve this case or provide a major clue, it would eliminate a waste of investigative resources. Turning attention back to our listeners, I will update you uh, as we know more information to the extent that we can. Please remember that this is an active and ongoing investigation. And so our ability to always uh, keep you fully in the loop will be, you know, somewhat limited at times. All right. I am so excited to have Justin Thole in with us today. And this will be you know, your first time hearing from him directly. He's been amazing to work with. He's done an incredible amount of work. And I really just can't thank him enough for, you know, for everything, uh, both for in terms of helping me, but also in terms of helping, you know, Josh Gimon's family and uh, just being so dedicated. So Justin, who, who are you? Where did you come from? Tell us about yourself. Well, um, I was, I was a storyteller. So I, I knew at a very young age that I would be involved in, in making videos. So that's what I do professionally, edit, shoot, produce video content, mainly for web and websites and broadcast. But, um, for fun, I would, I would do short films. I have a couple under my belts. I do a few music videos here and there. Um, but yeah, what, what drew me to this though was, um, it, it was kind of local. I grew up in St. Cloud. Um, so it's, it's a few miles away from St. John's. A lot of my classmates and friends went to St. John's. I would visit them. In t 2002, my friends were freshmen at that point. And I remember 
Josh going missing around that time. I even remember seeing some of the posters they had put up. It was years later, the podcast In the Dark came out and one of the episodes featured Josh's case. And that just kind of sparked something in me like, oh yeah, that happened. Uh, and he's still missing. And to me, that was unbelievable that it had been that long for, for this missing person to have zero evidence come up uh, wherever, whatever path happened to him. Like nothing has came up since 2002 and that seemed bizarre. So I think that's when I really truly started deep diving, digging into <laughs> Josh's case, um, almost too obsessive. So you started purely researching online, right? Yes, yeah, so it would be gathering newspaper articles, uh, old web news videos, like anything I could find. I would, I would try to get um, past news footage through, through broadcasting agencies and stuff, just trying to hunt these down. Um, but yeah, I was just gathering everything I could. But then at some point you realized you were missing tons of information still. I hit a big wall. And it was- What'd you do then? About that time, I made the decision like, okay, I've reached this wall. Uh, either go proceed onto this and actually do something with it and make something out of it, or I have to just stop this cold turkey. That, that's when I, I called Brian and- um, Josh's dad. Josh's dad. And so that's when I started digging in for real. And I got a lot more insight about who Josh was as a person and uh, things revolving around his case. And eventually he, he handed over the hard drive that Josh had at that time. The other thing that we should point out here is that investigators have an image of the hard drive taken relatively soon after Josh's disappearance, right? Correct. And so it's not as if, you know, you were trampling over evidence. evidence. Right. By the time Brian gives you the computer, yes, you most definitely are not the first person to look at the hard drive, right? Correct. They installed some, you know, consumer-based recovery software. Uh, and I tried see to. that and try to pull what they could uh, at that level. Um, and but yeah, so recovery software. <laughs> Why would you need recovery software? Why did someone try to use recovery software on Josh's computer? Well, I assume they were looking for data that had been deleted that they were hoping to recover using this recovery software. They didn't find nearly the breadth and depth of information until you ultimately get a hold of it. How did that happen? What did you do differently? Well, I'm, I'm obviously not a computer forensics guy like sure. <laughs> I'm not the best at that so I kind of had to teach myself I got some open source forensic software that would be able to read all the data and metadata with every single file and just a lot of time sifting through everything on that computer on that hard drive uh, running numerous searches following trails within the files, um, just anything that I can. The majority of this time is me trying to find what's the true 
date? What is, what is the absolute truth <laughs> that this file was created or modified? A lot of people, you know, find it pretty spooky that Josh's computer was apparently playing music like at like 11.52 p.m. and skipping songs through like 12.32 a.m. or something like that. Yes. This, there's something about this particular timestamp that you indicated was more reliable or seemingly more reliable than a lot of the other timestamps and time codes on the computer. What was that exactly? Um, that this particular file contained the UTC time code within it. So I could compare the last modified time to the last entry that was written to this file. And I can see what each version of the drive was translating that date and time to be. I see. And so it does seem to you then like this particular music match player that the timestamps associated with that are actually <laughs> more consistent and more reliable than you know, say the timestamps on random other parts of the computer. That's accurate, yeah. How do we square that with the fact that Josh's dorm room doesn't register him badging in past 11.06 p.m.? It could be someone else accessing his computer, uh, a roommate. It could be someone, uh, we talked about the rock in the door. Someone could have, anyone could have been in there. I don't know. And this dorm, so to be clear, this wasn't like a dorm that had a hallway. This was a right. townhouse style dorm that in order to access it, the only access point was a front door on the ground level. And that was it, right? Right, right. So, you know, perhaps like Josh gets back and the dorm or the door is propped open mm -hmm. and or perhaps like, you know, he gets back and somebody else is just walking out the door at that same time right. and he catches it. Perhaps the door wasn't propped open, but maybe it didn't latch all the way. Or maybe he did use his access card and it didn't register. Or maybe, as you point out, maybe it wasn't Josh at all. Right. And then again, there's a possibility that, that there is a, even though you've done everything you can to sync up the times, timestamps and verify that this program is that the timestamps on this program are actually quite accurate, there mm. is a good possibility, I suppose, that maybe that actually still is wrong. Correct. So one question I've been asked, Justin, is, is it possible that everyone just has the timeline wrong and that Josh went to Nate's dorm, you know, along with Alex and Greg, like earlier on, like maybe in the 10 o'clock hour, and that, that he actually left, you know, shortly before 11 or around 11 or something. And that when he gets back, he badges in at 11.06. And then that explains why, how he's at the computer, you know, playing music and, you know, potentially using AOL Instant Messenger and such and potentially doing other stuff on the web. We, we just don't know because of the deletion. Right. But it, isn't it possible that, that that's true? I guess it could be possible, but that, that's a lot of people to collaborate. And you would think that at least one person at the party would say, no, it was at 10 or whenever. Right. So we've, we've got all told there were like 10 or 11, right. if you count, depending on whether you count Josh or not, people. And so it does seem like it would be a lot of people being a full hour off right. at that time. Yes. 
I want to get in, I want to talk about certainly what you found on the computer. Sure. But before that, I think we have to address the elephant in the room. Why, how, and why, and who deleted information from the computer such that we needed recovery efforts in the first place? So there was some information deleted from Josh's computer days after Josh had gone missing. How do you know that? We have internet activity uh, listed out. We have a series of web pages that were visited. Um, we have programs that were installed. And um, one of the programs installed was an internet washer. washer. <laughs> right. All right, so way back when, Microsoft tracks tracked your data like they do today but uh, there were there were two blatant areas that all of your search history would appear all of your your JPEGs from web pages would download to and they were in these two main folders they're kind of hidden users you know couldn't just open it up on, on their desktop they, they were hidden folders deep within that. So yes, they were harder to find. This program targeted those two folders. But what wasn't apparent is Microsoft had a third folder hidden even further down that could store all that same info and this software didn't did not target. So that's what I'm working with with uh, the web page history on Josh's computer. That's why you have some information even though a Lot, a lot of it, at least, was deleted, right? Right, right. So, all right. Yes. So, you know that that someone at some point has used the computer. Let's let's actually mm -hmm. talk about how. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be hesitant here. I don't want to pass along judgment mm -hmm. to people that did touch and use the computer, necessarily, because we're talking, you know, twenty years ago. I don't know that everyone understood the value of this type of electronic evidence, right? Exactly. And so Ted joked, you know, like that it's this big box of evidence, and which it really is, <laughs> and people are just using it. In some ways, that seems absurd to us now in in 2022, but in 2002, you know, and even in for for a number of years following that, I don't know that it seems that absurd, right? Right. So if I understand correctly. Someone logged onto the computer, mm -hmm. and you said visited some websites. Yes. What websites did they visit? Uh, pretty innocent websites. Uh, they they searched the Amber Alert. They even searched for the area of Collegeville, which is you know adjacent to St. John's. Um, they searched the name Josh Gimo, and uh, no results came up. It was way too early for even Amber Alert or for the other websites to even have Josh's name out there. They also searched America's Most, Most Wanted. wanted. Um, America's Most Wanted. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a strange one. Um, I, I'm only assuming they're looking for any info on Josh at that time. Did they visit any other websites in that immediate time frame? During that time frame, they also visited um, the internet washer site. They looked at 
getting a trial version. And then there was more activity using webmail. Um, Wait, someone logged in the middle of all of this? Someone accessed their webmail? Their, their webmail, yeah, was their it, email. Do, in terms of the order of events, Yes. did the webmail happen at the beginning or in the middle? Smack this? in the middle. There's even two instances where Internet Watcher's site was accessed too. So first there was the initial uh, Amber Alert, America's Most Wanted, Internet Watcher trial, and then it jumped back to more activity, uh, webmail. And another program that was installed was some sort of zip program, right? Yeah, it's like an early version of, of if you remember WinZip back in the, back in the day. Yeah. That was the thing. It, it, it was uh, software that would package up files specifically and try to compress them in a more manageable file size. So basically you could take lots of information and put it onto like a thumb drive, right? Exactly. Do we know whether a thumb drive or any other kind of device was used around the same time as that zip program was used? We do. We, we can see a USB device being used in that and we we'd have no idea which files they took whether those files were deleted or not uh, they could still be on the computer uh, there's just no way of knowing what they took or if anything was took at all but they didn't use Josh's account on his computer um, they had to use they had to create their own account and that user that was created was one of Josh's roommates, right? Yep. And you've talked to that roommate, at least in writing, briefly, right? Correct. And that roommate has denied ever touching Josh's computer, is that correct? That is correct. And their explanation is that they gave the username and password to someone else who was using Josh's computer in the days following his disappearance, right? Yeah, it was his understanding that he needed that information in order to use the computer, to use the internet. One theory I'm working with in this case is that the reason someone may have used an internet washer and brought a zip program onto Josh's computer and taken files off of it mm -hmm. is to engage in some kind of impression management. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I can, that's totally possible. Impression management is a danger to any investigation that involves human behavior. Very often, you as the investigator may be pulled down rabbit holes by people who engage in conduct that seems suspicious to you or that cause an event to occur that seems like foul play. Often though, that event or that conduct can be explained by something completely innocent or at very minimum something simply irrelevant to your investigation because those rabbit holes can cost you an exorbitant amount of investigative resources such as time and money it's important to check for impression management as an explanation where you have concerning conduct or events for example in this case there are two potential theories regarding impression management that we are currently kicking around the first is that josh's dad and josh's uncle stayed in his dorm room following his disappearance for several days and in fact, it was Paul Guimon's webmail that was being checked in close proximity to when the 
internet washer and zip program were downloaded. So let's just ask him, why not? No one seriously suspects that Paul and or Brian engaged in any kind of foul play against Josh. And so is it possible that they were trying to, you know, protect Josh or themselves from some sort of, you know, embarrassment or who knows what other form of impression management may be at play. And it just so happens Paul brings up the second theory that I'm kicking around at the end. Here's a portion of our conversation. Hey, Paul, it's great to meet you. And thank you, you know, so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. I've been getting to know the family a little bit more. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really nice. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, doing the podcast. Yeah, of course. So uh, one of the things that you might recall, and you were actually there right on campus in the days following Josh's disappearance, right? Yes, I was. I uh, stayed in the dorm room with, uh, with my brother, Brian. You actually stayed in Josh's uh, very dorm room itself, right? Yep. Josh's dorm room, yes. And there were a lot of late nights, uh, a lot of searching. You know, you guys were doing really everything you could to try and find your nephew, right? Yes. Yep, we had the searches going on right away, and uh, just you know, you know, kind of they're, they're saying he drowned the drowned the lake. It's like there's no way. But in, in my opinion, uh, somebody from that somebody from the campus snatched him up. Yeah, and you know, we're going to talk about the lake and the idea that he could have drowned, and we're going to address all of that, and certainly you know, as many of the the possibilities that have leads as we can. But for right now, you know, suffice it to say that even investigators and, and I don't think really anyone else seriously is exploring the idea that um, the lake is a real possibility at this point. So, you know, that's got me really just digging into who who was Josh, you know, figuring out you know, what made him tick, kind of what he was up to, especially around the time of his disappearance, really trying to better understand him, dig into his computer, dig into, you know, his daily habits um, talking to people, things like that. And I hope you do get a chance to listen to his autobiography. Um, you know, the one that we had in our bonus episode, I guess, cause it was, uh, yeah, man, it was impressive. Yeah. Like I said, just said, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I were just going to sit down. We're going to listen to that tonight. You know, I mean, he was, he was the brightest one of, of my nieces and nephews that came out and he was going to be a politician. There's no two ways about that. Well, so one of the things that's come up over the years and it's sort of just trickled out at times, uh, but in the days following Josh's disappearance, investigators didn't lock down, you know, his computer right away. It wasn't, it was just a different time. So, you know, it took him, I think like three, four five days or something like that to grab it. But within those first few days that you were there, you guys were, you know, like using his computer to check your email and, and, you know, sort of stuff like that while you were hanging out in his dorm room looking for him, right? Yes, exactly. So the, you know, one of the things that, well, one of the things that we've learned is that in order to access the internet at St. John's on one of those computers at that time, you needed a network login from, you know, from a student or a staff member and there's been some controversy surrounding the fact that a new user account was created on Josh's computer a couple of days after his disappearance. Yep. Under the name of one of his roommates. And, you know, that roommate says, hey, I, I just gave my login information or I logged in for Josh's dad or his uncle or something. And that's it. I, I never touched the computer again. And it seems like, you know, some of what he's saying here must have some sort of truth to it, you know, because like, for example, 
when we're looking at the history here, we, we can see that like that you checked your email, you logged into your Yahoo email and you, you know, you looked at, you know, you looked for your nephew on Amber Alerts and America's Most Wanted and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, I remember like today. I remember doing all that. Yeah. Gotcha. So, you know, in that immediate time frame, in that, you know, like same few minutes even, there was also a search for an internet washer on the computer and a, a file compressor, like a, a zip software. And, you know, there's, it's not quite clear to what level you know, stuff was deleted. We, it does seem like stuff was deleted from the computer at that point. Yep. And so there's been a lot of questions as to, you know, was this done by that roommate or, you know, that, that the one whose username that was created was brand new or, you know, was this maybe done by family as some sort of impression management, you know, wanting to make sure that they got, you know, something off the computer that, you know, might be embarrassing. Yep. I understand Um, all that. Yeah you know, for Josh or something, or, or was it nefarious? Like, you know, maybe, maybe someone trying to cover up foul play or something like that. And, you know, as we're trying to dig in and understand all of this, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, was, was this you? Like, I mean, you're obviously logged into your email at basically the same time, you know, like, did you and or Brian, did you, did you guys download this stuff and try to delete stuff for, you know? No, I did not have any clue of that. All right. So we keep looking. I tell you, like I say, straight up right now, uh, my brother Brian is not uh, computer savvy even now in this day and age. And back back then, I didn't know about that either. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I did not get getting on and, and get on checking email and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I mean later on, you, you like say you learn about that stuff. Yes, what I what I know now. So back then, hell, it's way different. Yes, I could have. Yeah. I could have got them search on his, on on his computer to try to find stuff. Now, did you find the fact that he was uh, making fake IDs? All right. So there was an Adobe file with some fake IDs, right? <laughs> yes. And you know, this has received some attention in the past, but like at the end of the day, these were you know th- these were Adobe Photoshop files with some really terrible image like fa- terrible fakes by the way like they would not i don't know how they would, they would ever pass maybe maybe in some bars you know okay. like i don't know but like but yeah they were pretty bad especially the michigan one right right, right. so there was like there was i think four or five fake ids on this computer mm-hmm. interestingly josh's was not on there correct if he even had one we don't even know if he had a fake id right but four of his friends and we're not going to name their names because what's the point right? right but four of his friends their photos and their names were with fake dates of birth, because we also know their dates of birth and they're not the same, <laughs> were on these IDs, right? Yes. And 19, 20, 21 year olds might legitimately be a little bit scared of the idea of having been busted, you know, having used a fake ID, right? Sure, sure. So there has been some speculation, I think, that that the deletion activity may have been related to trying to just simply trying to clean up those IDs off the computer. That's a theory that has been thrown around quite a bit. You look at me kind of like skeptically, though. What, what about that? It seems like you doubt that explanation. I doubt because um, the Adobe file was never deleted. It's been on his computer ever since it first was created in 01. How do you know that? Uh, I can see the created date, modified date every time they open it. I see no attempts of those photo IDs 
even being deleted at all. Like they were just kind of left on. Well, I mean, it's possible that there were more, right? And then maybe, like maybe, for example, Josh's was on there and it was deleted. It's it's possible. And so you can see why someone might suspect that 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 was their goal is maybe to delete the com- the fake IDs off the computer, right? Right. And you know, a lot of you know people have theorized that maybe Josh was doing this ring, this photo ID ring, where he. He was paid as a service to provide other students or other people these fake IDs, and I, I, I read that and it, it makes zero sense. But what, what's on the computer? Like it's literally those four yeah. IDs. Um, so really, I mean, again, this is another instance where if those friends would just talk about these this basic thing, yeah, it, it would yet again help us clear up stuff that should not be 20 years later should not be something we're sitting here struggling with trying to understand right yeah just put it to bed so we also know that josh deleted something else from his computer on October 28th, right? Yes. What was that? That was the Yahoo Chat program. And what else do we know about the Yahoo Chat program? So we know that Josh had been active on the Yahoo Chat throughout a number of different rooms, and he had several accounts chatting on uh, in so he, these rooms. So he was using different accounts, like prof- profiles to chat, right? That's correct. And this was in the Yahoo chat program itself that he was doing this, right? Um, or on the web, I guess. On the web. It was a web-based, a web-based app. Got it. Do we know what rooms he was in? Some of them, yes. Were they sexual? Yes. So he was... So he was definitely using Yahoo Chat to talk in a sexual way with people, That's right? That's correct. Had he been doing this throughout the whole time that he had the computer, as far as you can tell? No, no. Um, that kind of activity happened, I would say, mid-2002. Uh, and it started with just his Yahoo account, his his Yahoo email, which was... Joshua 5427 or something is the zip code of Collegeville. Um, so it started innocently enough. He would search, he would go into law chat rooms, sports chat rooms, that sort of thing. And yeah, dating chat rooms too. Nothing too crazy. Um, did that change at some point? It did. So two new profiles were created. And yeah, I'm being careful not to say Josh did this because I don't know for sure that Josh did this because anyone had access to his computer. Anyone could walk in there and use it. And people did. Uh, How likely is this that it's someone else? Not very. But why do you say how do you why do you say it's not very likely? That anyone could have came in just because of the time that it was used. Those are times regularly he would be 
at his dorm. And let's be more specific, it was like in the middle of the night usually, right? Yeah. And I mean, quite frequently it seems like Josh was up at, you know, very late hours and very early hours into the morning, you know, using these chat rooms, right? Yeah, pretty pretty regularly. Okay. Or well, I should say someone was, but it seems like it was because of that right. it was probably Josh. Yes. Okay. We can say it was probably Josh. And we should add here, you know, we also have Josh's badge access data for his dorm room for the entire fall semester of 2002. Mm -hmm. And we can tell like when he went into his dorm room and then when he would get on the computer by comparing these pieces of information, right? Correct. Okay. So in all likelihood, it was Josh that created these two new Yahoo chat profiles in early October 2002, right? Yes. And he then engaged in very different behavior on the Yahoo chat program than he had, you know, previously starting in mid-2002. Right. What was different about that behavior? Way more explicit material than he'd shown in the past. So he was going into chat rooms that were clearly very sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. He was doing this quite frequently for the entire month of October of 2002, right? That's right. What happened on October 28th that Josh deleted the program? We don't know for sure, but uh, we do have um, evidence that he had visited the Yahoo um, administration and reported a user for misconduct, for breaching the, the terms agreement. What that is... we. We have no idea. How do you know that he did it? We can see the website that he visited. We saw that he had info that he submitted and that got sent off. Wait, did you see the info that he submitted? We can't interpret the info that was submitted. Oh, so it's like sort of like just encrypted data that you yeah. can tell was transmitted? Yeah, Yahoo would probably have it if they stored that kind of information for that long of a period, but they would be the only ones that would have that info right now if it existed. And so he logs on, and, and do you know what user he reported? I do not, no. Okay, so he logs on, he reports somebody for something. We don't know who or for what. Right. And then what happens? Uninstalls Yahoo Chat and deletes his user folders on his hard drive. Oh, so he, he not only did he delete the program mm -hmm. from the computer. And it could have automatically deleted that folder too. But that's kind of key because back then Yahoo Chat would store some of your information, who you're talking to, even some of the personal messages that you've sent or received would be saved in this folder. These were webcam rooms, right? Some of them were, yeah. So later on... Uh, so he had been doing this Yahoo chat for a while, and it, it seems like later in the month of doing this, he kind of um, went and visited these, these camera chats, and was the focus seemed to turn more into webcams. It seems like something spooked Josh that caused him to delete this program, right? I agree. Something occurred that he decided to never use this for a while, at least. And so you and I have looked at a lot of pieces of evidence 
and we, we've been trying to construct a timeline to track as much of Josh's activity as possible, right? Yes. One of the things we noticed is that it seems like Josh logged onto this computer on October 28th and reported this user for violating terms of service, almost immediately having a 28-minute phone call using his phone card, right? That's right. And we have no idea who he called using that phone card that day, do we? Correct. And so therefore we have no idea whether that's related to the logging on to Yahoo and reporting the user or not, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It could be totally unrelated. With the information that you have been able to recover from Josh's computer, you've learned a lot about him. Fair to say? That's fair. You've got at least six months, a year or more of internet history just at some level, right? That's right. You've got activity on the computer that's not you know, strictly internet related, right? Correct. As we've talked about already on this show, you've got the music player, right? That's right. Um, you've got, you know, what other kinds of software have you been able to find on the computer? Software wise, um, I believe I have all the data from when he first purchased the computer freshman year at St. John's. How about email? Have you been able to access Josh's emails? I've, I've been able to um, recover some of the web mail that he used. So he would go into Hotmail, and since that was web activity, I was able to recover some of those messages. But as for polling specific uh, emails, correspondence, I, I've not been able to pull anything from any of his accounts or online accounts. So you've got a few emails, it sounds like, but mm -hmm. you don't have a lot. Right. And so I think some of the emails you, you said, you've, you've seen some with his ex-girlfriend, Katie, right? Yes. And we, what do you recall about those emails that you've been able to find? Well, those were um, after their breakup. Um, Which was in like, it was actually sometime in like the summer of 2002, not, not just a month or two before. Right. It was actually earlier, right? Right. Okay, and so, right. so after that, after the breakup, what did you see in the emails? Um, just them talking about how they missed, um, they, 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 they scheduled to meet up after a class and Josh had missed it and he was sorry. And it, it just seems like everyday things. There was one point where he messaged Katie saying, hey, could you uh, bring back my gray hoodie and something else that I left there and uh, just things of that nature. Um, Wasn't there an email where like shortly before Josh's disappearance or maybe I don't know maybe within the month before Josh's disappearance where they're talking about like homecoming? So this is between oh, Katie yes. and Josh? Yeah, yes, what, what, yes, you, yes. What, what was going on with that? Um, Katie had invited Josh to the homecoming game and Josh had declined and he he stated that he was trying to avoid Jason. This has been a rabbit hole in this case for a long time and I think we've just managed to be able to fill it in here in this past week or so. If Josh is avoiding someone by the name of Jason in the month of October 2002, so 
a month before his disappearance. That's obviously, you know, potential for concern. And so there's been, you know, some speculation for years as to what Jason could he possibly be referring to that, you know, he would know at St. John's that would potentially be at St. John's homecoming. Well, upon further, you know, reflection and, you know, digging into the emails and, and digging into old calendars of, of, that are available online for the high school games and, and so forth, it actually makes far more sense that this is the Maple Lake High School homecoming game that Katie and Josh are referring to in this email exchange, not the St. John's University. Uh, and for that reason, it then substantially narrows the number of Jasons. In fact, Josh was very close friends with the Jason growing up. And so I called him and further dug into why might Josh have been avoiding him at that time. As it turns out, <laughs> Jason thinks he was doing a multi-level uh, marketing thing at the time, and he thinks that Josh may have been avoiding him for that reason. Uh, nonetheless, they, you know, they remained friends and you know, they were lifelong friends. And so it was actually really nice talking to Jason and hearing about his, you know, memories of Josh and, you know, their friendship. And, and Jason noticed the, the growth that Josh was clearly exhibiting at college, you know, the changing perspectives, uh, as he commented himself on in, in his autobiography. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, uh, I would say one of a kind, but everybody uses that cliche. He was a very good friend, fiercely loyal when anything was happening, and just he would take the time and help you out. Oh, we were, I have pictures from second, third grade at birthday parties, everything else. We would hang out all the time, all the way through high school, all through quite a bit of elementary school. Um, you're always forever evolving. So, you know, college changes a lot of people because you're away from your core group that you knew through high school and other people have different perspectives that you may never have thought of. And Josh was always very curious about everything. Before we disconnected, I asked Jason if there's anything he'd like to say to potential tipsters in Josh's case. Think if it, if it was your own kid or, or your own best friend. Any, you know, anybody that you're really close to. You know, if you want to know what happened to them, you all know how we feel and how we want to know what happened to Josh. Sometimes light is breaking through But my blinded eyes can't reveal an illusion I can't trust it being real So I keep on wondering until I feel
The river.